This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our goal, again, is raising independent children, and there's no easy way to just make that happen. It's It's not... It's not the waving of a wand. You can't just, they can't just declare their independence. Independence has to be earned, and you see it when the kids have confidence and the tools they need. This is especially important as, you know, we're about to launch a bunch of new kids from high school graduation, from college graduation, uh, out into the world. Are, are your children independent? Do they have the, the ability to uh, to basically um, be spiritually independent? Are they able to connect to their deeper purpose? Are they emotionally independent, meaning can they keep their cool and help others to keep theirs? Do they understand their emotional strengths and their weaknesses? Are they financially uh, solid and independent? Do they have the ability to pay their own bills, to make their own way? Do they have the ability to understand credit and debt? It's a big problem with our kids today. They get to college, they they walk through an airport, and someone says, hey, I'll give you a T-shirt if you sign up for a credit card. And you're like, is it that easy? And the next thing you know, you're wearing your T-shirt to uh, bankruptcy court. Um, so those are some ways that we've talked about before on the show about creating some more independent children. Also, a couple of other ways that we want to make sure our children are independent from us as parents are intellectually independent. Can they solve their problems and can they think for themselves? Do they actually know how to figure something out? And we've got to be so careful because it's very easy for us as parents who have lived forever to just go get the car washed or to go figure out what we have to do to get our car licensed. But the, the dilemma is that information is out there, and if you tell your child how to do it, then the next time they don't actually know how to figure out how to do it. We've got to teach our kids that they've got to be curious. They've got to use the value of um, the Internet and the, and, the, and the web, but they also have to use the right sources. They need to know what sources to question on the Internet. They need to know what are the best um, sources that actually are, are legitimate, that we can trust. They need to just know simple ways to search, healthy ways to search. We have so many opportunities with our kids today to have more information, to be more intellectually strong, and yet um, are they getting there, or as parents, are we always intervening? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We've got to help them try to evaluate their own thinking, um, understand when their arguments may not be strong, how to make a strong argument, how to be open and 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 literally willing to adjust and um, fix our way of thinking, as our uh, last guest was talking about. So intellectually independent. Can they solve their own problems? Can they think for themselves? Um, also, I'd, I'd make sure that they also are able to hear information from other perspectives without, uh, you know, being terrified by the fact that there are other opinions, that there are other perspectives. Um, also overlook the the human nature, the tending the tendency that we all have to just not keep learning. You know, learning's hard, so let's just go the easy way, the lazy way, right? And just let's just 
accept what everyone else is saying is true. Parents, we can help them talk more about their lives. We probably ought to be asking our kids a lot more about their opinions before we share our own and show them and literally walk them through how to make decisions and how to get to the better answers. Another way we need to make sure our kids are independent is socially. Do they know how to care for others? Do they connect deeply with others? Are they socially independent kids? Do they have a voice? Do they know how to share their voice? Do, they, do you notice that they don't share their opinions very easily? Have they, uh, have they been able to lift the anchors that may have kept their ship nice and safe in the harbor, but have they been able to lift those anchors so that that ship can get out and start to sail with other ships? In our relationships, we've got to be able to work with people. And a lot of us, if we've had, you know, a traumatic childhood or if our parents, you know, had problems or something happened in our life, we may have learned that it's easier to not attach to others. So make sure that our kids don't have these attachment issues, that they can truly uh, connect to others, that they are willing to be vulnerable. Do they know how to manage a conflict? Do they know how to actually have a real communication, a real conversation? Are they introverted or extroverted? These are all things that we should be able to help our kids to better understand who they are as they have to walk this crazy thing we call life. It's not easy, but uh, independence has got to be there. And the reason it's got to be there is because you can't get to an interdependent relationship if you don't have two solid independents. And if we have somebody that's too dependent, we will never get to an interdependent state. An interdependent state is where I, you know what, I don't have to be with you, but I want to be with you. I choose to be with you because being with you, it makes my life better. A dependent state means I have to be with you because you're the one paying the bills, so I have to do what you're saying. What are we doing to make our kids more independent? How do we turn their lives over to them, put them in their own driver's seat, and let them lead, let them live? That's what we've got to figure out as parents. And it's not easy, but it's doable. And we'll, we'll help you. We'll be your guide on the side. That's why we do the show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Let me give you some principles of life if you want to be happy, okay? Four principles that I uh, have found. They're not new, they're, and it's not grit, uh, but it might lead to grit. Uh, four lessons of happy people. If you want to be happy and you – because there's a lot we can teach our kids, right? And we're killing ourselves trying to give them every opportunity in the world – but if I, if I could just only teach my children four things, these are the four things that, boy, I think in the end are worth all the money in the world. First and foremost, if I could teach my kids to just be self-aware, meaning they could understand how they influence others, if they could see their strengths, if they understood their weaknesses, if they really were into understanding who they are, if they understood their feelings – had their their own insights into who they are, their contributions in life, their their greatest uh, strengths, their greatest weaknesses. If I could teach self-awareness, boy, then I would be ahead of the game. If I had a child that understood what he did well, what he doesn't do so well, and hopefully help that child also learn to to take that self-awareness and develop it into you know, strength and go be learned and tutored and educated on those things, how cool would that be? Are your children self-aware? Do they understand the impact they have on their friends? Do they understand what their strengths are really? Or do they just kind of shy away from them and don't want to go there? 
Do they know if if they're good socially? Do they know if they're good academically? Do they know what what they're good at academically? Do they know what they come what comes natural to them? Are they numbers people? Do they get the numbers? Do they are they do they love language? Self-awareness is a powerful powerful trait. And so if we could teach self-awareness, that helps us understand us. One way to do this is to work with your kids and ask them questions about themselves. Like, what foods do you really like? Which foods do you notice, really, that, uh, that don't, don't suit you, that, that aren't good for you, that you eat, and when you eat them, have you noticed what you feel after you eat them? What, uh, what things impact your moods? These are great topics of conversation, things that we could be discussing with our kids. Try to identify from what they're saying about themselves, what do they feel like they do the best? What do they feel when they're out playing on a team? What insecurities do they have? Where do they feel most secure? Where do they feel most at home? How do they impact others? Just conversations. And by the way, allowing a child to feel what they're feeling. If they're sad, don't try to get them to stop feeling sad. Have them talk about their sadness. Figure out where it came from. How did they get to that feeling? Anyway, self-aware is one of the great lessons I think we should all be teaching. Another is that we, we want to teach our kids to learn to care. How many times have you asked your kid, what do you want for dinner? Like, I don't care. Well, I know you don't, but I need you to kind of care. <laughs> what do you want to do when you grow up? I don't know. I don't care. At some point, caring is, is more than just being nice, right? At some point, learning to care is... Is, is something bigger than that. Caring is also, it's the great motivator, right? When somebody actually cares about something else or someone else, it actually drives emotion. To care means we know more uh, about ourselves, but we also kind of know what drives us. It's a sense of responsibility. You know, having a dog. As a kid growing up, I cared for my dog, and even though I didn't care for cleaning up after him, because I cared for the dog, I wanted the dog to have the best life, I, I created more motivation. I was more in uh, a connection with this dog because of that. So we've got to teach our kids to care about stuff, to care about their own gears, their own equipment, to care about their own thinking. Some things they, they can care about are their thoughts. We care about thoughts. When we care about our thoughts, we have thoughts that we believe in. We espouse thoughts. We fight for our thinking. We can care about things, you know, our toys, our bikes, our stuff. And we try to preserve the things we care about. We can also care about people. And when I care about people, we end up taking care of people. We listen to people. We serve people. So if we could teach our kids to be self-aware and to care, holy cow. Then we're on to something. We could also teach them to dare, right, to grow, to try to be stronger, to reach out, to risk. And then we could teach them to share, to serve others, to connect, to give of what they have to others. Self-aware, care, share, dare. Basic skills, folks. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there, and you think, oh, I'm such a loser. Such a loser. What part of you is, is saying that? Right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness? 
which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up. I call it spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world. I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy. Sure. So your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. You're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart but super creative. Whatever your parents told you um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up, to me that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference so when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think – and I have to break that person down into little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blankety blank. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are – you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here, Right. And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit – or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Social media is something we cannot avoid. It's part of our world now. And last week, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg testified in front of Congress for its part in the Cambridge Analytics leak of information. Would government regulation solve these problems? Well, here to speak with us today is Paul Levinson, a professor of communications at Fordham University in New York. He also appears regularly on CNN and MSNBC, Fox News, the Discovery Channel. He's out there uh, trying to, to just inform and educate all of us on what's going on in, um, in our social media world and, and in the communication world overall. Dr. Paul Levinson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. 
talk to us. Uh, I mean, about this, the, the the Cambridge Analytics is a it's a really complicated thing. But in the end, um, through social media sources, they were able to access a lot of data, a lot of information about a lot of us. And because of that, Congress has now decided, okay, it's going to maybe start regulating our social media. But you think this may not be a great idea? I think it's a terrible idea, and here is why. Uh, The only thing that keeps a democracy free, at least if you look uh, back on history, is media and journalism and reporting and all kinds of communication, even filmmaking, that is not controlled by government. Mm. And that's why our founding fathers, or at least some of our founding fathers, in particular Thomas Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, most of those people were from Virginia. In fact, all three of those were. Mm. But others joined them. That's why they put the First Amendment into the Bill of Rights. It, it's not the Tenth Amendment, it's not the Fifth, it's not even the Second Amendment. They thought this was so important. Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or press that they made it first and foremost. And, and as a matter of fact, there was a lot of debate back then about should we have such a strong federal government? Is this going to endanger the liberty that people fought so hard to get in the Revolutionary War. And uh, the Bill of Rights in general, and the First Amendment in particular, were the safeguards that were put in at the very founding of our nation to do everything possible to make sure the government didn't get too powerful. Mm. Now, how do we – so if the federal government doesn't step in to to create some of these protections, then um, are are we just to trust that the social media groups will? Yes, and that's not such a strange thing. I mean, if you think about business in general – and it's certainly the case that social media are kind of business. But if you think about any business, it succeeds if people are happy with it, right. if people are comfortable with the product. It doesn't succeed if people are unhappy with it. So clearly, I think it's, a, it's also not a very good thing. In fact, I would be furious if my personal information were you know, pilfered off Facebook or any uh, other social site. But the best way of dealing with that is the the users of Facebook should let Facebook know they don't want to have their information uh, publicly available like that on a system that's available to people who can hack it or even get on there legally. It's not such a complicated thing. The other point here that's worth making is if you watch that uh, testimony, uh, Zuckerberg's testimony and the questions that were asked of him, uh, it's clear to me that uh, I'm a college professor. The average student in any one of my classes knows far more about (laughs) social media than than senators and uh, people in Congress. So you're asking people who are fundamentally ignorant of social media to go in and regulate social media that's a prescription for serious problems <laughs> it's true and and well and facebook already they their market cap took a big hit i mean they they lost a lot of money because of this scandal so it is it is kind of self regulating in that they're losing people and they're losing uh i mean a lot of a lot of big named uh like um 
just big name people and and companies and corporations are pulling away from Facebook, or at least saying, "I don't want my information out there." Yeah, that's that's uh, exactly the point. And look, another aspect of this is we have a person who's president of the United States. Uh, and a day doesn't go by in which he doesn't lash out at the media. He's even said he thinks too much attention is paid to the First Amendment. He thinks that there should be some federal regulations, not having to do with Facebook, but just the media in general, because any news that's unwelcome to this president, he denounces as fake news and, and says something needs to be done about it. So especially with someone like that in office, this is the worst possible time to introduce federal regulation into uh, social media. That's true. I mean, even if you loved uh, President Trump today, you may not love the next one. You didn't maybe love Obama. And so to turn this power over is a is a very big deal is it i mean i guess too we the the founding fathers probably never could have imagined um some of these social media sites or some of the the ways that the press would change the ways that media would change um but you're still saying overall it be we need to be very slow to 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 impede uh freedom of speech in any way shape or form that's exactly right. Look, the only kinds of communication that people had back in the days when our country was founded were speech, handwritten letters, and the press. So not only were there no social media, there were no electronic media. There was no radio, no television, right. no motion pictures. And, you know, throughout history, the Supreme Court has made some really dumb decisions. For example, in 1915, there's a famous case, Mutual Film Company versus the state of Ohio, in which then the Supreme Court ruled that motion pictures were not protected by the First Amendment because they weren't really any kind of political communication, because no political documentaries had been made back then. And they said it's just a form of entertainment. The government can and should regulated. It wasn't until the 1940s that the Supreme Court saw the era of its ways. But saying that social media somehow, you know, are not part of the press really overlooks the fact that uh, millions and millions of Americans, and it's only increasing, not decreasing, get their news from Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, some people may not like that, but that's the reality, you know, if you're 15 years old, if you're 20 years old, if you're 25 years old, if you're 30 years old, you don't watch the evening news. Uh, you know, even I don't watch the evening news right. anymore. I'm that much older. But, you know, these are vital media. They give information to us all the time. Yes, there's, they make mistakes, but the best way of dealing with these areas is encouraging the media themselves to stay on top of it. Well, and I guess one thing you could do as legislators, you don't have to necessarily go start um, creating legislation to control the media, but you could just hold hearings. Just their holding of hearings kept this in the news a lot longer than Zuckerberg would have wanted it to be. Yes, I think that's a very good idea. And look, you know, Facebook uh, was pretty arrogant, uh, and they've been arrogant throughout their history. And, you know, when they were first uh, 
you know, put in the spotlight because people were saying, hey, you know, there was a lot of false and fake news stories, not what Trump considers fake news stories, which is anything he doesn't like, but real fake news stories. Yeah. You know, like Hillary Clinton running a child predation uh, operation right. in a pizza parlor in Washington. You know, Facebook's first response is, hey, what do you want from us? We're just a place where people come on and talk to their friends. And that kind of arrogance hurt Facebook. Uh, but I think Facebook has learned its lesson, and part of the reason it's learned its lesson is indeed because of these hearings. So the hearings are great. Regulation is not. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Paul Levinson, who's a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. And uh, he he's a, a major um, guest that appears on many of the, the big uh, talk shows and talk uh, stations. Um, Paul, is is there a difference, though, and you tell me, you're the expert, of speech and data management and data mining and um, the rights that a lot of us have with our data to keep our data free? Um, is, is that a different component to the, the other um, discussions we're having about social media? They are different to some extent, and that's why this is so complicated. Uh, if somebody is standing up talking somewhere and some police officer comes over or an FBI person comes over and says, you can't talk, that's a clear-cut case of interfering with someone's communication. If a newspaper is shut down, that's a clear-cut case. Mm. Basically, regulating social media so that they don't make their data so publicly available, I would agree is not such a clear-cut case. But the problem is when you bring in the government to regulate any communication system in any way, History has shown that once it gets its foot in the door, it stays and it gets more and more obtrusive. And, and here's, unfortunately, an example that we're still seeing the consequences of. The Federal Communications Commission was created back in the 1930s to do one thing, to make sure that radio stations didn't broadcast in frequencies that were so close to each other that they interfered with each other and drowned each other out. Mm. Because back in the 1930s, they didn't even have FM radio. And, you know, we've all experienced this. If we've listened to the radio in our car, you know, before there was satellite radio, you drive from one city to another, and a, another radio station starts coming in, and for a brief period of time, you can't hear any radio yeah. station. So this is what the FCC was created to do. And not only that, it was written into the Federal Communications Act that the uh, FCC should not consider the content of radio stations when it gives licenses to radio stations. Well... Unsurprisingly, within a few years, that's exactly what the FCC started doing. And, you know, I'm sure uh, most of the listeners are aware of what happened when Janet Jackson uh, right. had a wardrobe right. malfunction. Right. CBS was fined millions of dollars for that. That has nothing to do with frequencies and, you know, whether you're 540 or 545, you know, on, on the dial. And this unfortunately, is what happens when the government gets involved. It can't help itself. It starts doing things that even if the law says it's not supposed to do it, even if the statute says don't do it, they do it anyway. So that's really, you know, uh, an example that we all should keep in mind. Any time anyone says, well, okay, 
we're not going to censor Facebook, but yeah, we need the government to come in and regulate Facebook in some way. Is 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 it the same thing? I thought also that this was because the airwaves were owned by the people and they were a shared resource, even supported in some ways by the government. So it was a, sh- a shared asset. But is, is there already a legal precedence that the Internet is something that they can control? Well, this uh, public airways thing I always thought was nonsense uh, anyway. Uh, it is true that everyone owns the air, but, uh, you know, electromagnetic carrier waves were never part of government. They were never part of the people. They were independent corporations uh. that actually built the equipment and, and sent out uh, the waves. And the argument that, hey, the government... Needs to regulate radio and television because they're broadcast over the public airwaves. That was brought in later to justify the kind of content regulation that uh, I was just talking yeah. about. But um, as far as uh, anything that's not on the public airwaves, there is already a precedent that the government needs to keep its hands off cable operations precisely because they they don't have anything to do with broadcasting, mm. per se. And the same is true with streaming uh, on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, and so forth. And if anything, the Internet is much closer to those streaming stations than it is to a, uh, to a broadcast operation. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what do you think about this idea? Now we're, saying, we're hearing from others that, you know, the Internet is a right. Everybody in the world has the right to access the Internet. And so some governments might even be stepping in to facilitate that. Uh, is is that is that also too much government intrusion into something like the web? Well, I have no problem if the government does things like build better ways that people's smartphones can operate. You know, so even here in New York, for example, uh, when I'm driving from my home to where I teach at Fordham University, uh, there's a big uh, roadway. It's called the Sprain Brook Parkway. And I'm still amazed that here in 2018, I'm driving down the parkway, and there's like about a three-minute you know, period of time <laughs> when basically... <laughs> I, I, You're I in no man land. Exactly. So, you know, if we're talking about the government uh, anywhere in the world improving (laughs) the infrastructure, hey, I'm all for it, yes. But again, that's not regulating in any way. You know, if the government wants to give money to something, if the government wants to help people, uh, uh, you know, get online, use the Internet, that's that's fine and wonderful. What I I guess then the key to this would be, if we want to keep government out, then we as buyers, we have to be more aware. We have to we have to have our heads on a little bit stronger and, and understand and maybe be a little more involved. That's absolutely right. And you have to know yourself. You have to know why you're on a particular system, why you're using it. So, you know, I said before that I would be very unhappy you know, if somebody took my data. But you want to know the truth? For the most part, I wouldn't be unhappy because if you look at my Facebook page, you see the titles of my books, yeah. you know, announcements of various things that I'm doing, classes that I'm teaching. 
I don't care if anybody knows about that. Yeah. I don't care if Cambridge Analytica takes that data and sells it. I don't know who they would sell it to, but hey, Go maybe uh, you know, I'm also a science fiction author. Maybe somebody will be interested in reading one of my novels that wouldn't have known about it beforehand. So, you know, in my case, uh, honestly, I don't care all that much about that. But, but I do recognize that there are a lot of people, including in my own family. You know, my wife feels strongly. Hey, she wouldn't want. You know, uh, it, not that there's any yeah. personal information, but she feels you know she wants her privacy. So, yes, I think each person has to know what they want in their experience, and the more that they're in touch with their own goals and using social media, the happier they'll be. Yeah, great stuff, Dr. Paul Levinson. Thank you so much for your time and your insights into uh, government and social media. Again, Dr. Paul Levinson is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. Um, uh, you can go uh, Google him, go find out more information about his books, his work, really uh, doing what he can, I think, for all of us to make sure that we we can be a little bit safer and, and more realistic about what's going on in this battle over social media. Don't just assume that the government steps in and and makes everything, uh, you know, tries to minimize their impact. A lot of times government might maximize their impact. Anyway, we'll continue the journey doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, there's when something goes wrong, it's usually when we start hearing everyone complaining about it, right? Uh, where were all the complaints before the Cambridge Analytica problem? Some people were complaining, and those were the people that were probably most informed, um, those on the cutting edge of the whole issue. But uh, but he, he makes a great point. Um, Dr. Levinson makes a great point that be careful in in being really quick to regulate, especially letting the government regulate, because, you know, when you let the camel's nose in under the tent, it's coming in. Um, and remember that regardless of your uh, politic, you you may you got to be careful because anybody could put their person in there and and start doing what they need to do. Um Remember some with President Trump, the idea about PBS and Sesame Street and cut the funding to children, um, television and network and all of these issues that started to come up. It's, um, you know, this is a big deal. And if everyone were just neutral and out for the best interest of the whole country, that would be great. But sometimes politics gets in the way and uh, decisions are made by people that don't necessarily understand the whole depth of the issue. So what do you do? Do you? I guess you you got you can just complain about it. You can just whine about your lack of freedom, or there are some other things that you might do. And I wanted to throw some of these other ideas out there so that maybe you could become a change agent instead of just a you know a pain in the neck um, and a complainer. One thing we could all do is try to understand the issue better. So instead of complaining about what's going on with social media, um, we could start actually using that same energy to understand the deeper pain behind the issue. Identify what's really going on 
uh, understand it, research it. Don't just research it from your favorite three sites that you always go to. Dig deeper, dig wider, and try to understand the issue at a completely different level. And then see what that does to you. By gathering more and more information, do you do you see it as a bigger problem or do you see it as you know a, a, a more balanced solution? Maybe one of the reasons why Dr. Levinson is saying hold back on allowing government to intervene is because in all of his research, he's seen a lot of history where government intervention hasn't made it better. Uh, another way we can handle our complaints or our fears or our insecurities is reframe the issue. So instead of just complaining about the problem uh, that others might be creating for you or this Internet or the whatever social media might complain for you, reframe the issue um, and, and alter the way that you actually see the problem. Sometimes the biggest problem we face is actually how we're seeing the problem. Um, reframe the, the, the issue as maybe not necessarily a social media issue, but reframe it as Dr. Levinson did as a, as a you know, First Amendment rights issue. That, so now you're going to allow the government to start saying who and what social media companies can exist and, and who can't exist. Be careful uh, how you see it also. Be careful how you frame it. Change it. Instead of complaining and hoping for change, you could actually start working immediately to create the change that you seek. Go start implementing the changes that you've learned about, the changes. Go fight for it. Go run for office. Go become an advocate for the issue and fight and and start becoming a leader in the issue so you can at least um, influence it. There's nothing worse than the pains of having a problem that you can't influence, right? So improve your influence. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, like I'm going to be able to change it. Well, no, like, yeah, you could. I mean, there's many examples in our world where one person made a change, decided to take on an issue, and uh, many a Nobel Peace Prize has been won by these people. Many a a movement has started by just the one person, but they didn't do it willy-nilly. They didn't do it uninformed. They were informed. They saw the need, and they took on the calling to go be the change agent and become the change. Or last but not least, just accept what it is. Accept it. You know, Accept this is how life works and figure out how you're going to live your life in relation to it, uh, like manage your own data. Make sure you're not overextending. Get off social media sites that you don't need to be on. Go in and change all of your passcodes, passwords, and other information. Um, minimize what you put online maximize uh, the messaging you want to be out there. I mean, there's a lot of things you still can do by just accepting the way this is the way the system goes and and uh, living that system the way you can live it, right? So you've, you've got a few choices. Instead of just complaining, you can also understand it, reframe it, change it, or, ex- or accept it, and become the change that this uh, world and country needs. Anyway, just some ideas to give you a leg up in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. (music) 
You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. No matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. On the other hand, we hear our siblings, children, and spouse complain, and suddenly we feel ourselves getting defensive or completely tuned out. Uh, so how do we complain so that people will actually listen? And and more than that, how can our voice uh, and how can we voice our concerns to create a positive change in the world? Tina Gilbertson is a psychotherapist in the private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago to talk to us about her article, How to Complain So People Will Listen. We uh, started the interview talking about, I asked her actually, how do, you, uh, how do I complain to people without turning them off? Right. Well, yeah, complaining is sort of an unattractive Thing. I think we are all kind of on the same page about that. Like nobody likes a complainer. Right. We don't want to be a complainer, and it's just really hard though, because sometimes we need to. We do need to speak up. Yeah. You know about it, whether it's in a relationship or at work, we need to speak up about stuff. Um, the problem is that you know, as as is as with most kind of relational issues between us humans, things like emotions get in the way, and uh, we don't always handle those. We don't always know how to handle those in a way that um, is effective and uh, allows everybody to to have their uh, their own feelings and and so on. So I think um, whether you're complaining at home or at work, there are a couple of um, elements to an effective complaint that doesn't yeah. turn people off. Well, and, and complaint. Um, it, it is. It, it is not just even the word. It's like, okay, I want. Here's our complaint box. Yeah, right. So it's almost like we need a better word, huh? We have to invent a better word than complaint. Totally. Of course, you know, you can go the other way and say, I have something to share with you. Mm-hmm. you yeah, know, I hate you. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to let you know that your voice drives me crazy. Yeah, just to share. <laughs> um, That's interesting. So, what are what are some of the tools that we could use for the healthy complaint? Well, I think one of the most important things to do is to own the fact that you're complaining and mm. own the feelings that you're having that are bringing you to complain. So too often the way we complain, and by the way, I am the worst. I am, I'm not an expert at doing this in my own life. It's kind of an open secret that we teach what we need to learn. Absolutely. So, you know, I love talking about this because I... And this is something that I work on myself. It's just too easy to point to someone else's behavior and say, that's not cool. So, and of course, that just creates defensiveness. Yeah. It is. But see, some people don't. Some people, they feel, that's why I guess in a way, complaining is healthy um, because if I don't do something with the feelings, if I just bury them and just go beat you up in my head, that's not going to help. But so I've got to just figure out how to share them with the person that needs to hear them. You're, yeah. you're saying, but own the fact that this is a complaint. Here it comes. I'm, I'm... Yeah, and, and by the way, if you do, if, if we do bottle these things up because we don't know that we have a right to complain, right? then we, then we end up with a whole bunch of resentment and we get Mount Vesuvius yeah. that eventually explodes, and then it's really ugly. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's then, so true. Yeah, then it's just, yeah. And the real issue is, you know, these are feelings that I haven't been able to share. Right. And they've just built up and built up, and they have a real force behind them then. And then, then it's almost impossible to say, even if you say the perfect words at that point, it's so loaded. You know, your emotions are just so there, and people can feel how, how intense an experience you're having. Mm, totally. So, so true. It's kind of heavy. 
But uh, so, you know, the way you own a complaint is by making I statements. You know, I don't like it when this happens or um, um, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't appreciate it rather than you're being rude, you're being thoughtless, you're insensitive. Yeah. Is it like – so I can give some context. So when we're in a meeting – and I'm talking to my boss. When we're in a meeting and you were bringing up this and this, it makes I, – I feel this and then I tell my feelings. I mean because I, I kind of need to give them some context, right? For sure. And the, the little bit of what's different at work between work and home is at home or with friends, you know, within your personal relationships, you can have a reasonable expectation that that person – has a vested interest in caring for your feelings. Sure, yeah. Taking actions to to protect your emotional bond, and at work, it's you don't you don't really you can't really expect that to be a priority for your coworkers. I mean, within reason, you have to you can expect people to treat you with dignity at work, but um, for you to say I feel unloved when no one makes coffee in the break room, <laughs> you know that's not. As appropriate yeah. as it as it might be at home. Yeah, you're probably going to be hazed if yeah, you do that. Exactly. Right. <laughs> They'll tie so, you up somewhere. Yeah. With a boss or with a coworker, you really just want to. And this is the second thing I would say besides own it is point to very specific behaviors or specific action. Make a specific actionable request. So, um, like. You know, when when you're yelling at me, it's hard for me to concentrate on what you're saying. Hmm. Rather than I feel hurt when you yell at me. Yeah, or what we might normally do is just go in there and say, you're rude. Yeah, right. And then the person can argue with you. No, oh, I'm not. No, I'm not. Nine out of ten people think I'm wonderful. That's I know. Right. So that's and why I you have to get state. specific, huh? But if you, if you take ownership and you make I statements, people can't really debate as easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't. They can't say your feelings are dumb. I mean, they can. Well, they can. But yeah, they can. But <laughs> yeah, they it, can. it's still your feelings. It's you're just. But if you're specific to a situation, I'm not saying, I'm not throwing out this statement that you're just a bad person. I'm saying, when you yell at me in those meetings, I feel attacked. I feel hurt. Yeah, and and if there's a you know if it's if it's elevated to the level of like harassment where it's totally uncool for the person to be doing that, I think it's reasonable to ask them not to. You know, please don't do that. Yeah. Uh, please don't make comments about my body. I don't like that. That's great. And that yeah. really is, I because mean, you have that right. Absolutely. And especially in that business setting. And you, I mean, and, and we also need in our personal lives those boundaries set, right? So for sure. I need you to, I, please don't do that. I won't, I can't tolerate that. Yeah, and how how often do you hear somebody say something like that? Like never, right? Yeah, it's right. A weird. It feels weird to say, and it also feels weird to hear somebody speak that nakedly about this is my need. Mm-hmm. This is what you did. I don't like it. Please don't do it. That simple. That's and you're. What's cool about it is, um, if you kind of dissect it like we're doing, it, it's not. You're not trying to be abrasive. You're not trying to cause a fight. You're giving feedback. You're, you're, you're basically saying this specific situation creates this feeling for me, mm-hmm. and then here's my request. Exactly. There's a, there's a request. Yeah, you know, And you want the request. Why? Like why do you want it like a specific request? Um, 
so the person knows what to do. There's no point in complaining if there's if there's not an actionable request. What are they supposed to do? Okay, yeah. um, you know, if if there isn't a specific request, then you can say, you know, I just need to vent about something. Mm-hmm. But if what you're venting about is you don't like their personality, then you're kind of at a stalemate. Yeah. Well, many times in marriage, you hear people saying, "Well, so what do you want me to do?" It's like they don't. I don't know. I don't know what you want me to do. You're just complaining. You're here to just complain. Yeah, actually, I just wanted to vent. Well, well, actually, you know what? I think the answer to that question. So, what do you want me to do? Especially mm-hmm. in a married couple, is often, and I'm in my mind, it goes right to that's the man talking. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Fix, I want to fix this. I want to get this yeah, done. Yeah, I, let's, tell me what to do. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. If he wants to smooth things over, and maybe the woman doesn't even realize that what she wants is just for him to acknowledge that feeling, yeah. to know how she feels and to care that she feels that way. Interesting. See, and we'd rather, I guess it kind of goes to maybe the way that we tend to, the man might more traditionally communicate is we're not going to communicate about wanting to be validated in my feelings per se, but mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you when I need something done and I just kind of need you to do it. <laughs> just and do you know it. What? There's, there's some value in that for women in particular because we are maybe a little, some of us are a little too likely to say, you know, other people's husbands help with the dishes <laughs> exactly. instead of yeah. making a request. Yeah. Well, but if you love me, you just do dishes naturally. Oh, yeah. you, would, you would realize how hard I work and you would want to help. That's right. And if I have to ask you, then it doesn't count. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. But if I mean, really, everybody's got, well, if, if you love me, we'd touch more. Well, I would touch if you do the dishes. Well, I do the right. dishes if you touched. You oy, first. Oy, oy. No, you first. <laughs> yeah. And then we just sit there and look at each other. This is Mad. Why I don't do couples counseling anymore. I know you got tired of it, didn't you? Well, it's just somebody's got to give first. Yeah. And when you've got two people who are who are who have needs, it's like meet my need. No, you meet my need first. Well, I'll meet your need when you meet. Oh. I can't even. It's like a tongue twister. It is. It's like a bunch of twelve or not even twelve year olds. It's like a bunch of five year olds fighting over. Who pushed whose Legos over? I do think we uh, revert to childhood a lot around these issues of, of times when we need to complain. I think we feel powerless. A lot of us feel like maybe we're not allowed to complain. Yeah. Or, or, and we don't know how to do it effectively. So by, by being able, and so far you've taught us, if we, if we want to complain so people will, will be more able to hear uh, or listen to it, we would basically go in, maybe ask for our time. Can I just talk to you about something? Exactly. Well done, yeah. And then, and then, you know, you know, kind of give the context in our meeting today. Yep. You brought up this and this, and then use I statements, and I and and I made me feel this. I felt pressure. I felt whatever. I felt embarrassed. I felt humiliated. Mm-hmm. And then own your feelings. I know they're mine. I mean, I know you. That probably wasn't your intention. And I'd like you in the future that you don't call me out like that. Right. Yeah. And depending on the work setting, you may not want to get too specific about about your feelings. That's true, huh? Yeah. It, it may be enough at work to say, that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That's great. I was comfortable with that. Again, that was Tina Gilbertson, author of the book uh, Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them, doing what we can on the show to give you the tools you need to be a healthy complainer. If you're going to complain, let's do it in a, in a healthier way. And really, let's try to just uh, lift the world by lifting our conversations. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. As we're all out there doing what we can to raise our children, our goal would be that they could be independent of us, right? That, that finally, you know, when they go away to college, that they can do it and they can be independent and uh, eventually we could circle back and create a really interdependent relationship with them where we are independent, they are independent, and we can go create something really powerful and wonderful together. The assumption is, though, that that takes place. And so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this Coach's Corner are some ways that we can help our children become more independent and and raise them on to a level of independence. Now, um, one reason I bring this up is because I think we think they'll they'll do it, you know, just by the progression and maturity of life. That by the time they finally graduate from high school, they will be independent, right? Or when they get married, you know, they'll be independent. But it reminds me of um, a Steve Carell, Michael Scott scene in The Office, where. He is in financial trouble. He has a lot of debt, and somebody Creed um, from the show suggests that he go and uh, and basically declare bankruptcy. And because he doesn't have a clue, Michael Scott doesn't this character. He uh, he walks out into the the office where everyone is standing, and he yells at the top of his lungs in declaration. By the way, I declare bankruptcy. He declares his bankruptcy, and. Everyone is – they're basically – you know, Michael, it's going to – you can't just declare it. You you, you got to actually – you got to file the legal papers and you've got to do all of that. Here's, here's a call. I declare bankruptcy! <laughs> well done, Michael. Now you have declared bankruptcy. It's not enough for our child to just scream at the top of their lungs, I'm mature or I'm independent enough. You know, at some point they've got to show it. And so um, there are some things we should be doing, I think, as parents to, to help our children and to facilitate their independence. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And I teach there's a lot of ways our kids have got to be independent, right? We want them to be whole children, healthy children. So we want them spiritually independent, socially independent, emotionally independent, intellectually independent. We want them financially independent. We want them to be able to be free to make real decisions on their own. And so let me just uh, go through some of these forms of independence and we can all look at our own children and say, okay, maybe I need to zoom in on this one a little bit. One of the ways I talk about it is, and I, this would be kind of the center of the onion, is we've got to have our kids on a level of spiritual independence, I call it. Are they able to connect on their own to their deeper meaning, their deeper purpose, their higher power in life? Do they have a relationship with a higher power? If it's God, if it's uh, you know whatever your belief system is, we have got to be connected to that higher power in our life, especially in how that higher power influences what our purpose in life is really about. Do your kids have a, a, a sense in their life that their, their life means something, that it, they have a purpose here, that they have a very personal you know, mission that they are sent here to accomplish while they're here on this earth? Do they sense that? Are they pretty closely connected to what they're passionate about? 
Have you started with these teenagers to help them identify what their passions are, what their interests are? Do they have you have you helped them figure out what their strengths are? What is it about their character that this world needs? Do they recognize that they are here as an agent, that they're here to make choices, that their that their destiny's not set, that they get to to lead it and push? These are all very kind of spiritually grounded ideas. And it doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean you have to be religious, but spiritually connected for sure. And uh, if you're so inclined, as I am, to, to uh, you know, be religious, then go be religious. But use these ideas to make sure that they understand what right and wrong is, that they have a methodology in their brain to go figure out what is true. That way, when life throws them a curveball, they can run it through their spirituality and see if they can't make something out of it. Another way that they could be spiritually independent or to be independent is is what I call emotional independence. Can they keep their cool and help others keep theirs? Do they understand their emotions? Do they really truly get how they work emotionally? Do they know where they're strong emotionally? Do they know where their emotional weaknesses are? Do they have uh, things they're battling, issues like anxiety or depression? Do they have a hard time focusing? It's There's a lot of little things in our lives that, that make it hard for us emotionally. Have we lived a history with our family that may have impacted us negatively emotionally? Do we have um, some interesting uh, issues where we, we can't trust other people, where we can't where we don't have a, a view or a sense of ourself that's healthy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Do we have any addictions that our emotions are keeping us stuck to? Do we have self-control? And these are things we want to teach our kids, right, so that they can, they can feel the same emotions as everyone else, but it doesn't mean we're going to act on the emotions. Do your kids know how to cool themselves down emotionally when they're getting heated up? Do they know how to call a timeout on their life and, and walk away for a bit and come back and return and re-engage? Do they know how to manage their anger? Do they know how to be self-aware? Basic emotionally independent skill sets. So we have spiritual skill sets. We have emotional skill sets. Uh, the, the third one we'll talk about uh, this break is, is simply about financial. Do they have the ability to earn? Do they have the skills, the tools they need? Can they actually get a job? Are they set up to go to college and or a trade school and get the skills they need to get out there and, and be independent? Because if they're not financially independent, then they might have to always live with you, right? And it doesn't mean they have to be a millionaire. It doesn't mean they, they have to you know even go to college. But they need to be somewhat geared to go be able to make a living. Not just a living, do they know how to manage their emotion? Do they understand debt? Do they understand credit? Do they understand how some of the basic financial um, issues of the world will go? Then it's not enough to just be spiritually independent and to be emotionally independent. Are you financially independent as well? Basic ideas. Think about your kids. How are they doing? And what can you do today to help them in one of those areas, to help them be more spiritually independent, more emotionally independent, more financially independent. By the way, if you hand them more money, or if you hand them just your spirituality, or if you hand them just your emotional help every time they need it, you might not actually be helping them be independent. You may actually help them be 
spiritually, emotionally, or financially dependent. And the more we do that as parents, the less uh, independent they'll ever get. So let's uh, let's start looking at it. Just some basic guides, some help, some help, and some insight into how we can grow more independent kids. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. If you have a brother or a sister, you understand that life wouldn't be the same without them. Um, you know, obviously, some tortured you. I had three sisters that, and I was the baby, and they took as they took great care of me. They used to hold me down, though, by the way, and brush their long 1970s hair over my face, uh, which now makes me hate hair. But other than that, uh, love my siblings to death. Think they're incredible. I had sisters that. That literally would, they were caregivers, they were protectors, they took care of me. I had a sister that uh, basically followed a prompting once. Um, she was supposed to pick me up and uh, just didn't feel right that she was going to go run an errand, pick me up and then run the errand, um, but just didn't feel right about it. So decided not to come pick me up, I believe, is how the story goes. I was young and uh, she ended up getting in a car accident. And it, it hit the side of the car where I would have been back in the day before we cared about seatbelts, really, or, you know, talking about anyone wearing them. We always had them rattling around the seats, but never using them. And um, honestly, it, it probably protected me. Or I think she may have taken me home and then went to run this errand. So thank heavens for uh, siblings that do watch out for you, that do care for you. I remember vividly going with my sister as it was her, uh, my second sister, as it was her turn to watch and take care of me. But she was a very social sister and wanted to get to her friend's house. So she took me on the bike. I remember uh, riding along with her. I remember playing with my sister in the backyard and she really wanted to do an obstacle course. And I'm like, let's just play. Let's just play ball. Let's just throw a ball around or kick a ball around. She's like, no, we have to build an obstacle course. And we did it her way and she broke her foot. So, you know, that's just how families work. And we we stay together. We go to our hospital trips together. I remember uh, them coming to ball games of mine. I remember um, them supporting me as I went on my LDS mission. I just over and over and over, families, they matter, right? And today is the day that you can actually do something about it. You have a reason today to celebrate your siblings. So take a little time. Write them a text, send them an email, get them on the phone, and thank them for being your sister or your brother as we celebrate National Siblings Day. I have a million stories. You have a million stories. I wouldn't know uh, the music bands or the bands Chicago or Bread or uh, Elton John or Neil Diamond if it hadn't been for my sisters. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't know that if it hadn't been for my sisters. When I ran into the back of a Jeep riding my bike as I was mesmerized, watching my feet spin below me and I ran right into the back of a Jeep, I wouldn't have had anyone to pick me up off the ground. But my sisters were there. And so uh, siblings, they matter and you matter as a sibling. And sometimes I wonder if we haven't we think we may have outgrown each other. We don't need each other as much. But honestly, you know, if it if it came down to somebody getting sick, somebody needing help, somebody going into surgery, we worry when it's our family and our loved ones. And so today of all days, let's look out for each other. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. At some point, you need to focus on your emotions. I'm a big believer that all issues, all relationship issues, all life issues really are emotional management issues. 
Life is great when you're feeling great, right? Is life great when you feel horrible? No. It's the emotion that makes it great or not. Well, no, it's really what's going on. But you've probably had situations where you were at a higher state emotionally, a healthier state emotionally, and still going through difficult stuff. The difficult stuff in life will not go away. Your ability to manage the emotion, it's important. And we just manifested that with uh, Dr. Laurel Mellon. Going through those questions really are pretty powerful, simply because, do you notice, it makes you almost find your shame. It almost makes you, it made me look at my guilt. It made me dig deeper into what I am doing and what I'm not doing with my own life. Those thoughts that she was processing me through create a lot of my emotional stress. So the the greatest value of what I think I just saw with uh, Dr. Mellon's work is that it gives me, I took a space, and in that space, I went and started to make change. When we make change and we make space and we focus on our emotions and our feelings, something's going to change. Something's going to happen. And uh, the problem is most of us don't ever make the time to do that. So make sure you take time to look at your emotions. You are not your emotion. If you're mad, you're not mad. You're still yourself. You got to go put your madness in space, right? Do something about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can on the program to help you and your family live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Life gives us a million things to do uh, at any given time, doesn't it? And with so much attention demanding uh, or so many things that demanding our attention, we can feel lost at times, overwhelmed or out of control. Mara Thomas is an award-winning speaker and author who wrote an article that shares the advice to control your life, control what you pay attention to. And uh, we're honored to have her on the show. Mara, thank you for your time and being with us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I I love the idea that... um, Really, much of life is just being able to to focus your attention, and you'll get the most bang for the buck on whatever you pay attention to. Absolutely. we Our lives are dictated these days by distraction. By we, we react to everything. Most people tell me that they go to work and they do whatever happens to them. And as a result, we don't get enough of the things that matter to us done. And I believe that attention management is the solution. That's the key. Now, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things vying for our attention. But um, some of I mean, some people, it seems like struggle with attention and focus more than others. And um, so do they do they really then have are they at a deficit here? Well, I think that um, it it is very difficult. I I understand from psychiatrists that it is increasingly difficult to diagnose attention deficit disorder as a clinical case because everyone is showing symptoms, all busy professionals, let's say, perhaps not everyone, but people out in the business world um, are super distracted and are showing symptoms of attention deficit disorder, but Sometimes that's just situational. It's just environmental. And when we remove ourselves from that situation, then our symptoms go away as well. And so it's really difficult to tell um, which it is. Yeah. And so um, I guess part of this is 
some of it might be a diagnosis, but even no matter what, it seems like gaining more and more skills, understanding how to focus our attention um, will help us in the end. Um, I guess we we have taught ourselves a lot of ideas, and some of them, you tell me your take on them. I mean, multitasking, we talk about that. We talk about all these other things. Are are these – is it real to multitask or is this just just another idea of, you know, not being attentive to one thing? Oh, I mean, I think there are – everybody has seen all the studies that show by now that multitasking is not helpful. But attention management really, to me, encompasses so much. I believe that we need to make a shift. We used to talk about the ability to achieve results in our lives, the ability to get more done, the ability to be productive. And to me, productive is is about – about achieving your significant results, leading a life of choice, being the kind of person you want to be. And the path to that used to be what we would call time management. And and it encompassed all kinds of things, to a certain extent, managing distractions and also, um, you know, prioritizing and calendarizing items and things like that. But that we've always known that we can't manage time. And so I think it's time to put a new frame around this idea of our ability to be productive, to achieve our significant results. And so I call that attention management. And it really encompasses all um, sort of all of the aspects of, of that ability to live a life of choice. It is about controlling your distractions. It's about being present in your moments. Uh, so it encompasses mindfulness. It's about the ability to engage your flow because we know that flow is a documented psychological state where we maximize performance and achievement it's the ability to really um, engage your your focus and uh, and and tune out distractions and really maximize your concentration. It's the ability to unleash your genius because all of the behaviors that we engage in, like multitasking and and constant distractions and reactivity, actually undermine our brain power and our ability to learn and be creative and solve problems. And ultimately, that all leads to our ability to achieve our significant results, to lead a life of choice, and to be the kind of people that we want to be. That's great. Is um, And what's cool is it's so based and steeped in a lot of the a lot of research as we go along, as you were just listing all of those. I'm like, holy cow, that's a whole research area. That's a whole research area. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, do you feel like maybe we are in a world, too, where we're trying to have it all? And um, and and is it possible to have it all when it comes really to attention management, or do we really just need to kind of find what's the one thing, maybe the two things that we have to really focus our attention on and go after the fewer things instead of trying to do everything? Yes, and that phrase, having it all, is a little bit to me like the the idea of balance, right? What, people talk about balance a lot today, too. We really have to define the terms, right? Because having it all might mean something completely different to one person than it does to another. So I, I think attention management is the ability to have it all because if we can't, if we can't do all those things, if we can't control our distractions and engage our flow and be present in our moments and, and maximize our focus and achieve our significant results, if we can't do all those things, then we miss those moments in our life. I believe that everyone has unique gifts 
to bring to the world. And so my job, I see my job as enabling them to bring those gifts in a way that energizes and inspires and motivates them instead of overwhelms and stresses and exhausts them. And I think that's where most people are today. So where's the best place to begin? Uh, Give us some tools, some ideas for how we could uh, where, first of all, where we should begin, I guess, do we start with distractions? Um, and, and what are some things that we can do today to begin to make this happen? Yeah, absolutely. So really, um, we have two types of um, distractions that we need to manage our attention around. We have external distractions, and then we have internal distractions. So let's take the ex- external distractions for a minute, because remember, this is the path to productivity, living a life of choice, achieving our significant results. So in terms of the external distractions, I believe that the path begins with three steps. First, you have to control your environment. So a lot of us work in open office floor plans these days where it's really loud and it's chaotic and there's interruptions not only from our technology, but from other people and everybody's talking and computer clicking and unwrapping things, and, and it's really just stressful. So we need to find a way to control our environment where we aren't slaves to our environment. If we put some boundaries around our environment, give our coworkers the message that we would prefer not to be interrupted, they will eventually get used to that, and they will honor that as long as you honor that. Second step is we need to control our technology. So we all act as if we are slaves to our devices, but we never intended, I think we've forgotten as a society that our devices exist for our convenience, not so anyone in the world can interrupt us all the time. And with more and more studies about persuasive technology and how it can manipulate our behavior, our only defense against that is our ability to control our technology, shutting it off, do not disturb, airplane mode, silent, not vibrate, shutting off the automatic download on our email, shutting off all the indicators, all the push notifications, not all the time every day, but taking control of that so that we can control our attention. And then the third step is, is in terms of the external distractions is to control our own behavior, and often that's the hardest part. But that's where mindfulness practices come in. That's where um, we recognize when we are allowing our attention to be stolen and when we're not controlling our technology, when we're not controlling our environment, because the more distracted we are, the more distracted we will be. Mm. And, th- and that undermines our uh, – it chips away at our attention span – and so our normal environments typically, our normal lives typically just undermine our productivity and our effectiveness, but we can begin to build up our focus again and to build up our attention span and to take control of all of those distractions. So those are the steps. Control your attention, control your, uh, sorry, control your environment, control your technology, control your own behavior. Those are the steps to external distractions. And- then we have... Oh, okay, I was just going to say, it just seems like um, how this would impact our psyche if we think that, yeah, I just I can't do what I meant to do. I'm, I mean, it's almost like we 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 fail to realize how much power we actually have over all of this. That it, it could it could really tip us over. Absolutely, and that's why I I teach a. Um, a, a methodology that is that is based in attention management. It's a path to productivity. I call it empowered productivity. And it's exactly what you said, because we have forgotten. We need to take back our 
our power, our control. We need to recognize that we are not slaves to our technology. We are not slaves to our environment. Um, there was an article in a, pa- in, a, in a big business paper once, and it was talking about, this guy was talking about how he, in order to get anything done, he had to go up to his um, cabin in the Catskills where there was no internet access and really very little, um, you know, the, inter- the um, electricity was even spotty. And I, I thought to myself, you, I can't. Why do you think you have to do that? You can shut your internet right now, right here. <laughs> you can shut off your phones. You can, you have the power. But somehow we just, I don't know. Maybe our willpower is depleted to such a point that we just can't do it anymore. Yeah, but no, totally. Talk I about uh, the internal side of this. Internally, what do we do to um, be able to to control the distractions, the internal distractions? Yeah. So. I think the biggest source of our internal distraction for most people is that we are running down our to-do list in our head all day long, (laughs) trying not to forget all the things that we need to do, trying to remember that we need to, um, you know, make the phone call and fill out the expense report and we're out of milk and the kids' soccer game is at 4 o'clock and just all of that stuff that is swirling around in our head at any moment. And so I believe that the secret to that is is to solving that problem is a workflow management process because most people tell me that they, the way that they manage the details of their lives, the way they live um, that, that life of choice and be the kind of people that they want to be is some combination of managing all of those responsibilities with lists and sticky notes and remembering and flags in their email and dry erase boards and, all of the in the notebook that they take to meetings and all of this combination of stuff and people tell me that they write things down to help them remember but the truth is if you have if you had a workflow management process something that wrangled all of those things in a way in a way that served it up to you when you needed it that organized it and made it logical and easy to act upon then the secret to a workflow management process is that you write it down so you don't have to remember Mm. and that's a whole different perspective and it changes those internal distractions and allows you to be your best self and do your best work and bring your gifts to the world do you write it down every day is it is it i guess that's part of the workflow uh process you have to create yeah so so to me, it's, it's, I use a puzzle analogy, right? If you were to do a puzzle and the pieces were scattered all over the house, that wouldn't be an effective way to do the puzzle. And if you stop and think about why is that not an effective way to do the puzzle, right? You can't see the whole picture. It's ineffective to run back and forth. Each piece is out of context. It's hard to tell. Um, it's disorganized. You can't sort it. You can't organize it. You, you don't even know how big the puzzle is. Mm. Right, All of the same reasons that it's not a good idea to do a puzzle with the pieces scattered all over the house is the same reasons it's not a good idea to manage your work with some combination of sticky notes and lists and, and email and your brain and dry erase boards and all of these things. So the first step for a workflow management process is that you have to get everything in one place. And I believe that if you do a, a big um, sort of dump and you gather all of the stuff, you collect it all and you get everything out of your head, then really you don't have to write it down every day. You just have to – you do it once and yeah. then you add things You add things as they come to you and as they happen to you. But, but your things are organized in a way instead of you, you've got one long list on a piece of paper. When something new comes up, the only place to write it is the bottom of the list. Yeah. But then you realize, well, it's more important than the bottom of the list. So that's when you start in with the arrows and the stars – 
in the highlighters on your pad of paper, right? Yeah, and yeah. then you're like, oh, this is a mess. I better start over. I better, I better rewrite my list. And so then it just spirals from there. So it's having so a way true. to manage all of that is and, well, and then there's old school and there's new school, right? There's there's all we have all this activity on our data and our I mean on our tools, our phones, our um, laptops, our computers. But then we also like I'm person I'm a person that loves writing. I'm a person that loves seeing my handwriting and paper. And so yeah, then now all of a sudden I'm using two systems. And uh, boy, it really is. It's something we need to probably become very intentional about. Yeah, so I got a, I've got another analogy for you, right? So the, the, the formula for productivity is not that different than the formula for sports. Let's take golf, for example. If you had the best set of golf clubs, if you had the same set of golf clubs that your favorite PGA pro plays with, it doesn't make you a PGA pro. Right, right. right. And, it, and if the PGA pro goes into the local Goodwill and buys whatever used club happens to be for sale at Goodwill that day, and then attempts to play the Masters with that club, you're likely to bet against them to win the Masters that year. So the formula for a great game of golf, or to be great at any sports, is both the methodology, the know-how, plus the tools. And it's the same is true for productivity. I think we have all of the best tools available to us that have ever been created in the history of civilization, right? We've got tablets and, and yeah. laptops and powerful computers and apps and software and all this stuff. But without the methodology to use them properly, it doesn't make us a productivity pro the same way it wouldn't make us a golf pro. So true. So true. Um, again, we're speaking with Mara Thomas, who is the author of two books, Personal Productivity Secrets and Work Without Walls. Uh, also, you can go to her website, marathomas.com, to get more information. And Mara, as, we, uh, as we're kind of winding this up, I, I think we live in a day and age where if there's ever been a time where we need to get um, some attention management in our children, in our families, it's today. How would you suggest we we address our families and, and try to improve attention management with our kids and our families? Yeah, it it absolutely starts um, at a young age. I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, and I would never, you know, try to advise people on how to best raise their kids, but their world is getting more and more complicated, more and more distracted. And so I think really helping them understand that all of these things are in their control. Now the power, the problem with kids is that they want it, right? They don't want to be away from their devices. They don't remember what it, you know, they don't have any frame of reference for what it was like before, uh, you know, before we had the internet in our pocket, in our smartphones, right? right? So I think teaching them, um, leading by example is the biggest, uh, the biggest solution, and really that goes not only for for our kids and our families, but really in business, which is my area of expertise. If the leader isn't present, if the leader um, isn't exhibiting attention management, if the leader, sometimes the leader in the organization or the leadership in the organization is the biggest impediment to the team's productivity. That's why I wrote Work Without Walls, because the leadership behaviors have a huge impact on the productivity of the team. And it's one thing to, to learn attention management and workflow management practices, but if you work in a company that just doesn't 
allow you the opportunity to say, you know, close out your email occasionally so that you can focus on other things. Or, you know, you've, you've got this crazy loud environment or your, dro- your boss is dropping in on you every two minutes, you know. Yeah. Hey, I need to talk to you about that. And can you think? Because everybody's going to drop everything for the boss. So you need to model, whether you're a parent or a leader or both, right? You need to, le- you need to model the behaviors that you want to see in the people who interact with you. Yeah, no, great stuff. Mara Thomas, thank you so much for your time and uh, your insights. Again, you can go to marathomas.com to find out more about her work, her her insights there, as well as her training opportunities and more about her empowered productivity uh, concepts. Um, Really, the more we understand how to to be attentive and in the space and in the presence, uh, the more we can actually maximize our output and our our flow. Powerful stuff based in a lot of pretty awesome research as well. We'll continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's my house, come on! Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Um... Yeah, when we talk about life management or focus or attention management, I guess at some point we all need to identify, too, what we're going to focus our attention on. Um, It it was an interesting find. I I was reading a book called Essentialism by uh, Greg McEwen, and one of the things that he taught in the book is the word priority – is a word that, uh, you know, we've all heard of priorities, right? We've got to have our priorities straight. Well, the word priority has, uh, by definition, means the singular one thing that's most important. And up until really about 200 years ago or so, priority was always a singular term, meaning you have one priority. But we live in a country, a day and age, um, a world that believes that we have multiple number ones. And we now have to prioritize our priorities. And then we have a belief that not only do we have more than one priority, we have five priorities, and then we need to make plans for our five priorities to make sure that we get our five top priorities done every day. And then that stretches to, okay, that's just your work priorities. Now you have your home priorities, and then you have your personal life priorities, and we then assume that now we can go choose what of all of our 15 priorities are the most biggest priority. Come on. Have we not completely messed that up? In the end, I'm convinced um, if I gave you uh, two years to live, let's say you had received a diagnosis, you knew you had two years to live what would eventually what would become your number one priority? What's the number one thing you would do if you knew you had two years to live? How would your life change? How would you reorganize? Now let's let's forget the two years. Let's just say you've got two months to live. You have two more months in your life of existence on this earth. What would be your priority really? What's going to be the key that that report to your boss, you got to get that report done? Well, I mean, it's an important report. I mean, I do have two months. Okay, forget the two months. Let's say you have two weeks to live. You're down to two weeks. 
two weeks of your life, what is the number one priority for you? What is the, what matters? Now, let's forget the two weeks. Let's say you had two days to live. So isn't it amazing when we shrink your life, your priorities get so clear. They're so clear. So you might want to just start identifying very clearly what your number one priority thing is. What's the one thing you would do and spend your last two days doing? How about your last two hours? What would you spend doing your last two hours of your life? Because whatever you do in your last two days or two hours is probably the priority of your life, period. That's the only priority. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't need to be done. You need to mow the lawn, right? You bought a house. But don't pretend like it matters. It doesn't matter to the same level as your priority. And uh, why I bring that up is because if we could actually dial in our attention even higher, but we don't have our attention focused on something that's important, then what good is having more attention? What good is having more focus if it's not focused on something that is absolutely essential, right? You don't want more time, more focus, more energy on something that's not important, do you? I mean, I think all that would create for you is more guilt, more confusion, more misunderstanding, more frustration, more exhaustion. So... Maybe the first thing we ought to do is identify what direction we should be heading, what's our true north, and then once we know what true north is, let's worry about our efficiencies. Let's get really good at going the direction we're supposed to go. But a lot of us are are really just trying to improve our efficiencies, and we have no clue where we're going. To be really efficient at something we shouldn't be doing is just plain crazy. We don't need to be awesome at useless stuff. We just, our life, we don't have the time, especially if we only have two months, two weeks, two days, or two hours. You know, when we've got two years, we can mess around a little bit more, we think. But it can all change on a dime, right? And um, so what are you doing to make sure that your most important priority, singular priority, is first? Um, And you know, how do we take these ideas to those priorities? That's actually because I had taught time management. I taught communication skills in corporate America. And what I realized in the end is to make corporations more efficient, not half as important as making our most important priorities work for us. So anyway, we are uh, doing what we can to help you focus on what's most important for you. So answer the question. What are what is your top priority singular? What is it? And whatever it is, I'd have it top of mind, top of list, top of your day. Doesn't mean you don't have to work. You do. But it also doesn't mean that in the middle of the day, you can't still take care of your priority, your number one thing. We'll continue the journey, folks, doing the thing we can to help you be the best that you can be. Up next, we'll be talking about how to complain so that people will listen. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends. You know, we all have those times where we feel like the whole world is against us. And no matter how much we voice our concerns, it seems like no one can hear us. So how do we complain so that people will actually listen? How do we share our point of view so that people will hear it? Uh, Well, uh, we had interviewed Tina Gilbertson, who's a psychotherapist in a private practice in Portland, Oregon. She's the author of the book Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. She joined us a while ago, and we talked about uh, some innovative ideas for how to complain so that people will listen. We started the interview with me asking, you know, we have some the power to heal, but it comes from listening, right? Yeah, and, and the trick is to hear the emotional need behind what they're saying. Yeah. It really is, because underlying all the emotion, there's a pain, mm-hmm. and the pain needs to be at least dealt with. I call the emotion the vital signs. You see signs of pain, right. and we use those signs to get down to the deeper issue. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. And it can be tough what to, to if, if you're not used to looking for those needs, because people. it's easy to get caught up in the content. Yeah. Yeah, so, like I, I did not say that in the meeting. I said this, and now right. we're arguing about the content instead of my emotion here, the issue. Is the most common response to a complaint is, no, it wasn't, no, I didn't, no, mm. that's not how it was. And mo- it's, then we get caught up in this thing that no one can, can win, and then the emotional need is sitting there going, hello? <laughs> what about me? Hello? What about me? Yeah. So um, let's just look at an example of something that might be a complaint. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Um, she was talking about a relative who's, she said, is really negative, is always down on. And I said, well, what kind of what kind of complaints are we talking about? What? Give me an example. And it was, she will say things like, oh, these two friends of mine are so um, passive aggressive. You know, mm-hmm. they never they never they never let they're so they never let me in on anything and. So she's complaining about the behavior of these two friends, and it really had a big, strong theme to me of she feels left out. Yeah. She's mad at them for, for helping her feel left out. So the, the response to that, and, and the reason we were talking about this um, is that uh, the person I was talking to didn't want to absorb all that negativity. Right. She felt really weighed down by it and just wanted her to shut up because she couldn't take all the complaining. Um, and you said earlier about uh, you mentioned the word boundary. Yes, yeah, some yes, yeah, so I, I, yeah, boundary or like a rule, yeah. Yeah, and that this can be really helpful to the person who's complaining is, and help you at the same time. You can actually draw a boundary by holding up a mirror to them. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like, let's say she's complaining about these two friends who never let her in on anything. It's really simple. You just say, it sounds like you feel kind of left out. Which is just holding – it's like the mirror. You're just holding up what you hear her saying. Right. And so you you don't need to take it all in. You don't need to absorb all of it and be angry about it. You just kind of reflect back what you hear her saying. Right. And that, and you may just feel like she's frustrated with that response because what she wants is to unload her feelings onto you. She doesn't know what to do with them. Right, right. That's but huge. When you, when you don't let her unload her feelings onto you, you're helping you both at the same time. You're preserving your boundary. You know, that's not mine. That's not my, my pain. Mm-hmm. But you're also holding up that mirror and saying, well, here's what it sounds like you feel. And people who are really out of touch with their feelings may be like, what? I don't even get it. What do you mean? No, I don't feel left out. What are you talking about? That's true. But that doesn't mean that you're not right. Right. 
And then what, what's interesting is if you can hold your space there and not attack but and understand it and search it and try to understand, try to get to the deeper need, yeah. then they can trust you. And you're also going to eliminate some of the emotion. Right. And, and uh, yes, and another step you can take after you've said, well, it sounds like you feel really left out, is to offer that validation of that sounds awful. Mm-hmm. That sounds painful. No wonder you're upset. Yeah, instead of trying to fix it or... Yeah, argue. That. So if I bring up my ideas, my issues, my points, I'm just going to further the fight. You're kind of every one of the things you're teaching us is to get into them. Just stay that with them. Stuff. It's their stuff. But of course, that's hard if they're complaining about you. you. Yeah, absolutely. Or your mother. It's yeah. even harder. Right. <laughs> that's why mom yeah. always gets thrown in there, huh? Yeah. But it really is. I mean, it's that's isn't it really the most basic human need, Tina? Is just to have somebody care enough to want to understand. Oh man, I I second that so strongly. Yeah, I think it is a very basic human need to, uh, for just compassion and understanding. Hmm. You just need another. I think that that's the the secret to um, therapy. Yeah. Ultimately, just very essentially. To be seen and witnessed by a compassionate other human being who accepts you for whatever is going on with you in that moment, I think that's the biggest part of healing. Yeah. You know, people talk about talk therapy and they say, well, is it really therapeutic just to talk and hear yourself talk and talk about your feelings? No, it's not the talk that helps. That's why you can talk all day about (laughs) how you feel and not feel better. It is how that's received. And yeah, and having somebody accept you as just what you are. Yeah. No judgment. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. That is huge. We're, we're all so busy. We, it's hard for us to remember to do that for others. Yeah. And that's the healing. That's the healing. So, so if somebody's bringing you a complaint, don't think of it as a chance that you're going to get beat up. You could just see this as a chance to create some healing, help somebody, help understand somebody. I mean, I mean you can also eventually share your side, some other in some other moment when the emotion's right and the timing's right. That's it. But right now I need to understand you because you're the one that has the pain. Yeah, that's it. But it's so hard not, no, not to totally. get defensive. Yeah. When people are complaining in a way that is not, they're not making I statements. Mm-hmm. You know, when someone says to you, Matt, you know, you, I can't believe you said that to me. How, how inappropriate and yeah. hurtful. You're such it's, a jerk, right. You're such a jerk. I mean, of course you're going to feel defensive. This is why it's such a tough nut because where do you where do you intervene? Where do you start? Yeah. When the when the complaint is more feels more like an attack, it's because it's not worded well. Right. And then when you've received a complaint that's worded like an attack, it's a lot of work to try to un, untangle yourself from your own defenses and yeah. say, "Wow, it sounds like I really hurt you. I'm really sorry about that." That's so true. One of our last guests said, "Listening is the mother of all skills. It is the number one skill." All humans need to have, and yet it's the one that still eludes us because our emotions get so caught up into it. Yeah, we're so into our own emotions and our own needs, we forget, even with people we love. Yeah. Well, as we wrap this up, Tina, give us, we have about 20 seconds. What would you say is the one key of everything we've talked about, the one thing that we need to remember when it comes to complaints and validation? With complaints, own it. It's your complaint. Own your feelings. And with validation, you don't have to agree to validate. Mm. You just need to see their point of view. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And just because I just because I do understand you doesn't mean I agree either. Right. 
Yeah, that's but cool. I, I want you to know I understand. If, if I were you, I'd probably feel the same way in your shoes. Good stuff. Again, that's Tina Gilbertson, uh, uh, the author of the book Constructive Wallowing, How to Beat Bad Feelings by Letting Yourself Have Them. And uh, just great insight, I think, for all of us to understand it's we have to communicate. In the end, it's going to be through communication that we not only understand each other, but that we change the meaning in life and make life better. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 